0: Speed and priority: How the Trump administration's Operation Warp Speed delivered vaccines so quickly and who's in line to get them first. Allison Winnicky from the Immunization Partnership walks us through it. I'm Lawrence Coletti and this is Legal Talk today. Hello, listeners. Hope you're having a great holiday season out there wherever you might be. And thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we're going to be talking about the new vaccines out there for COVID-19 that have made it through this accelerated FDA process. And of course, these are the vaccines that are related to Operation Warp Speed. So we're going to learn a little bit more about that, these new vaccines from Pfizer, Moderna, and I think there's a couple others on the way, if I'm not mistaken. But also, we're going to get into some of the prioritization, some of the ethics of that, and how those choices as to who gets that vaccine first, how those decisions are made and who gets to do it. But to help sort this out first, we welcome our guest Allison Winnicky, the president and CEO of the Immunization Partnership. Welcome to the show, Allison.
1: Thank you so much, Lawrence. So happy to be here.
0: Well, Alison, no, thank you so much for joining us. You know, I know you have a background in law and obviously, you know, a lot about vaccines. And so you're just the perfect guest to talk about our topic today. You know, and we've done an episode before we, we covered this episode right before the vaccines went under that accelerated FDA process right before uh, Pfizer went. And we were talking about whether or not the boss at a place of work could mandate that and all the legal issues that would come from there. And uh, we got into it a little bit. We just talked briefly in passing about Operation Warp Speed, just to kind of give the background. I know it's a partnership with the pharmaceutical companies. I know it has to do with the health and human services, the Department of Defense is involved, and a whole lot of taxpayer dollars, I might add. But uh, can you tell us about Operation Warp Speed and how it works?
1: Yeah. So Operation Warp Speed is a U.S. government initiative, and its goal was to produce and deliver 300 million doses of safe and effective vaccines uh, to combat the coronavirus by January 2021, and something that's interesting about Operation Warp Speed is that it's a little bit different than what we've seen from other past initiatives. So, first of all, it's a bit more like a, a public-private partnership, and in fact, they brought in a pharmaceutical company to lead it, not um, you know an, an agent of the government. And secondly, you know, despite being a government initiative. Um, there were a lot of complaints about lack of transparency and and some complained of sort of outright secrecy from the program. Um, You know, what the program does um, initially when it started um, earlier this summer was to help bring us COVID-19 vaccines quickly to get us out of this pandemic, basically in two ways. One way is to try to fund actual vaccine development, so to put money towards getting vaccines developed. And then the second way was that Operation Warp Speed, they basically put in pre-orders with a lot of pharmaceutical companies that said, you know, if your vaccine does get FDA approved or authorized for emergency use, the United States government commits to purchasing X number of doses for X number of dollars. And so they did these for several different vaccines. And and our first two vaccines that we've been talking about so much in December to receive emergency use authorization from the FDA are the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. And so both of these vaccines and these pharmaceutical companies did interact with Operation Warp Speed, but they actually did it in two different ways. The Moderna vaccine um, availed Operation Warp Speed of both of their, their two main funding areas. One, they received about a billion dollars to help support their vaccine development. So from the very beginning, doing their vaccine development and their clinical trials, and then on the the back end, they also Moderna also signed uh, about one and a half billion dollar agreement for the U.S. government to purchase about a hundred million doses once they did receive emergency use authorization, which just happened. Um, conversely, the Pfizer vaccine, which actually. Received its emergency use authorization first. They did not take any Operation Warp Speed money on the development of their vaccine. They developed that vaccine all on their own, um, using their own resources. But they did strike a, a nearly two billion dollar deal earlier this year for the U.S. government to purchase about a hundred million doses of the vaccine. And so, you know, as, as I said, you know, Operation Warp Speed, they're really trying to invest. U.S. taxpayer dollars in one of two ways or sometimes two ways simultaneously with um, pharmaceutical companies to help get us some good um, contending vaccines that can be either authorized for emergency use or eventually fully approved by the FDA as safe and effective. And, and even though um, Operation Warp Speed is not going to reach its goal, um, its initial goal of trying to get 300 million doses by January. They will be able, will hopefully will be able to get about 20 million doses by January to these very high risk groups under emergency use authorization.
0: Yeah, I think one of the smart things about the program was sort of that pre-staging you were talking about, uh, making those purchases up front to get uh, these pharmaceutical companies to get uh, production going in advance, even before approval. That way it's there and you can get it out to people as quickly as possible once it's approved. So, and you know, the other thing too, is they have several, as I understand it, was a lot of different candidates involved in the process. So you're not just kind of putting all your eggs in one basket when it comes to who comes up with the right vaccine. So let's transition into what you were kind of getting into this emergency use authorization that you were talking about. I understand that's a status that can be given during certain circumstances, but it kind of helps bypass a lot of the regular process within the FDA. So can you briefly tell us about that and then we'll get into some of the management issues on the safety side?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, most people understand that the United States has a very strong and robust vaccine development and approval system and that nothing gets fully approved by the FDA until it is proven through long-term stage three clinical trials that it's both safe and effective. So an emergency use authorization can be utilized if we are in a federal public health emergency, which we are right now because of the coronavirus pandemic. And what it does is because it's a public health emergency, because the threat, to imminent consequences of death because of this pandemic are so high that it avails us of the opportunity that if we have really good stage three clinical trial data that shows that so far the vaccines are showing that they're very effective and are showing that they are very safe, even though we haven't yet reached what we would have required normally for long term studies, the shorter and moderate length studies, the data is so good, because it's a balancing factor, the risk versus reward here um, is so high, it will then be authorized just during this public health emergency to use for these high risk groups that they have the opportunity, you can't mandate it because it's just emergency use authorization, but the opportunity to access very promising vaccines that have had not yet completely finalized their long-term stage three clinical um, trial studies. And so um, it's because the risk is so high that they've opened up this opportunity, but that doesn't mean that the trials were in any way shortened or condensed or less rigorous than normal. It's just opened up this opportunity as those trials are, are continuing on as they normally would for full FDA approval.
0: Just a quick follow-up on that. My understanding, uh, one of the ways they sort of trimmed the timeline was that some of these steps, they go one after the other with some of the ones that they could combine, do them at the same time. They were sort of stacking them on top of each other in the timeline and thus were able to subtract some time. Can you explain how that worked a little bit before we move on? Yeah,
1: and so there's actually because this was a pandemic, some things kind of came together for the clinical trials to get good data earlier. And in fact, one of those reasons is is that tens and tens of thousands of people across the globe were enrolled in the clinical trials. And because the coronavirus is spreading so quickly in communities all over the globe, that folks who were enrolled in the trial process were exposed to the coronavirus relatively quickly in their community, as opposed to some other diseases where it's not quite as easy to catch. And so we had so many people we would call challenged that were in the clinical trials receiving these vaccines that then we were able to collect the data quicker than in other circumstances, non-pandemic circumstances to say, yes, these vaccines actually did prove that they were able to ward off the coronavirus and prevent infections, and um, gathering the safety data to make sure that you know there were no serious side effects, and so um, we were able to get some data in quickly. And then on the regulatory side, yes. So normally it's a sequential process. You know, first the data is coming in for the FDA, and it's you know being analyzed, and that takes a while, and then for an advisory committee to make a recommendation and then the full FDA to make their call, whether they're actually gonna authorize or approve the vaccine. And then it moves over to the CDC where we have the CDC's advisory committee, advisory committee on immunization practices go through their entire process as well to again, look at the data, again, then make their recommendations on which individuals should receive the vaccine. And so what we did on the regulatory side is we still didn't cut any corners. We still did all of those things. But a lot of the, the groups received the, the data coming out from the pharmaceutical companies, from the clinical trials simultaneously so that they could be making their reviews at the same time as their counterparts and other part of the government were also making their reviews. And so we were able to shorten some of those, those timelines. Although, um, again, I just want to emphasize that no corners were cut in these reviews. And if any sort of negative, data and information would have shown up about either safety or efficacy, this was the opportunity for um, that to be raised. But so far everything has looked good at least on these first initial vaccines going through the emergency use authorization process.
0: All right. I want to transition into distribution, and so I've been reading in the news and listening to on the news a lot of podcast uh, news outlets out there. And so there's a plan for distributing this uh, this vaccine to the populations that need it the most. And as you said, you know we're starting off with uh, some 20 million to start, and then eventually there's going to be a lot more out there. But for right now, we don't have the entire country covered, so they're going to have to make some priority decisions. And so when it comes to this particular vaccine, you know who are the groups that are getting it first, and who out there. As making that type of decision.
1: Yeah. And so this is actually this whole process about the the vaccine distribution really reflects on the way our our legal system in the United States, particularly as it relates to health and to public health. And so, you know, in the United States, um, the responsibility for protecting the public's health falls to the states through our 10th Amendment of the Constitution. And so, even though the federal government is really organizing you sort of think on the FDA side about the approval of vaccines for being safe and effective or authorized for emergency use, the actual distribution of them and making sure that the right folks get them in the right priority groups, that falls to the states. And so what we are seeing on the federal level are some recommendations coming out of you know, some really well respected groups. I'm thinking about the National Academies of Medicine and also again the, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC's um, ACIP, that advisory committee on immunization practices. But technically these recommend these are just recommendations, and every state has to make their own distribution plan focused on hopefully incorporating some of these um, very expert recommendations, but also kind of tailored to their own state. And so, and I'll also say this, even the, we have these two very well respected federal groups that have come out with recommendations so far. These are not easy decisions and they are actually a lot of ethical decisions and they don't actually all match up exactly. But one thing that about everyone agrees with is the very first batch, the sort of phase one We want to make sure that we get frontline healthcare workers immunized. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, their risk is high. These are the folks that are treating COVID-19 patients every single day. So every day they go to work, they put themselves at risk for contracting COVID from their patients And two, it's also about making sure that our healthcare system is robust. So we're really crunched right now in that a lot of, if a healthcare worker is exposed or infected with coronavirus, they're out and um, they are not able to treat patients and any people they come in contact with too. And we've seen hospitals all over the country that have really, they're not able to keep up with the demand sometimes because their healthcare workers are also getting sick as well. And so a lot of folks agree on that. And then after that, that's where we see a lot more disagreements. Um, The CDC just came out um, this week with some new recommendations that actually slightly changed from what they had originally said, taking into account the fact that we do not have a lot of vaccines and trying to balance the issue of, Um, folks who are most at risk of catching the coronavirus, also balanced against individuals who, if they catch the coronavirus, they will have more adverse outcomes and even death. And so you think in that second category about people who are um, elderly, say over age 65, people who have some pre-existing healthcare conditions that put them at greater risk for very dire complications. And then, you know, contrast that with the first group. You're thinking about your frontline workers, people who are out there interacting with the community every day, like your first responders, your educators, folks who work in, in public transportation. And they're, because of the number of people they come in contact with, they're also likely to get it. And so trying to balance these considerations. We're even seeing that at the, on the federal level just to come up with recommendations. And then we're going—we're seeing it in every single one of our states and territories trying to make those exact same decisions again. And so you want to say that we'll get it right the first time, but we're learning as we go. And as the data is coming in, we're always trying to, to make sure that um, that is factored in about sort of risk factors for catching it and risk factors for um, those negative consequences and even death once a person catches the virus.
0: Yeah. And if you think the country's divided now, just wait till some of these decisions come down. But, uh, you know, one thing that uh, that I came across, and, and thanks to my, my producer, Molly McDonough, this article by America, uh, this American Journal of Medicine, and it kind of like painted some of the issues that you were talking about, some of these factors that they weigh that are not easy. So before anybody judge, you know, uh, whether or not it's a good idea, you know, think about some of these factors. That, that's my closing question to you, Alice. I want to talk about how they balance this. You, you talked about, you know, let's get the frontline workers that are treating covid patients because we can't afford to lose them but we also can't afford for them to spread it to other uh, patients out there that aren't sick because of covid but you start balancing that with like well if you know if an elderly person gets it they're in a high risk factor for death compared to other people and so there's a balancing act there and this isn't the same with all of the viruses out there because this one disproportionately uh, affects elderly people and not children, which is kind of weird. You know, uh, some of these like flu and other ones that are similar, you know, they kind of target, you know, young people like kids, like little kids and then elderly people. And so you kind of look at those groups. So just the pattern of a virus, the amount of supply of vaccine you have all dictate some of these, these moral and ethical duties that you have. And it's not always an easy equation to balance. And you even just said, you know, with different states, they have different priorities. They have different population centers that are centralized differently if you're out in a Western state, you're not as on top of each other as you are in New York City. So let's talk about some of those balanced priorities before anyone judges these decisions that come into play in the different states.
1: Yeah, they're actually, it is really, really tough. Um, In a way, it is almost like rationing access because we just don't yet have the numbers we need to vaccinate everybody. And so I'll give you an example when we're kind of talking about, you know, the ethical issues. When we think about some of the groups that were hit hardest by the coronavirus, we think about folks who live in congregate living. So people who live really close together. Right. And some examples of that are um, people who live in nursing homes and assisted living but it also includes people who may live in state hospitals, like um, hospitals for disability or um, mental illness. And it also includes folks who live in prisons, and jails, in the correctional system. And so if you just think about what are folks who may be most at risk? Well, we have seen these three groups of people living in congregate living really hit hard. They are not only groups that um, are more likely to catch the coronavirus, but also they're also overlapping in the the groups that are also maybe more likely to have the negative impacts, including even death once they catch it. However, a lot of people have prioritized the nursing homes and elderly because it's like, yes, most folks agree they should be first or, or right after those frontline healthcare workers. But what about prisoners? So I'll tell you some of the federal recommendations that have come down. They've really grappled with this on an on an ethical issue because it's scarcity. And sometimes folks think, well, you know, should um, you know a 75 year old person in a nursing home receive the vaccine before a 75 year old person who is incarcerated in a prison versus a 75 year old person who is say, in a, in a state institution. And so these are absolutely very, very difficult questions to ask because we have you know, a scarcity of resources and because we're trying to make these decisions based on need as well as risk factors on a virus that we are learning every day a little bit more risk factors. And so they are constantly changing. And so, for example, when the CDC just came out with their most recent recommendations, they made a recommendation for our next phase to include corrections officers who may work in prisons but not the prisoners themselves and so again it's a it, it is an ethical dilemma about vaccinating some people in an area but not other people who are right there with them and so that's why um, it is really important that we factor in these ethical issues about you know scarcity supply risk risk to life and risk to serious negative consequences as well to get as close to right as we can because these are these are not not easy issues and everyone um, of us who has been working on this, it's very difficult to try to make sure that we get that balance right for the the small amount of vaccine that we have available.
0: Well, you know, the good news about that is we have a vaccine. We have uh, more than one vaccine and it's been, you know, brought to us, you know, I think this is a record. And so, you know, we live in a, very lucky live in a country that has the ability to do that. So although these are difficult decisions and there are imperfect answers, a lot of gray lines, a lot of policy here, at least we're able to debate that as opposed to, you know, this being several years off, which would just be a horrendous situation to be in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And honestly, this is really is just the beginning. So we have two vaccines under emergency use authorization. In the next couple months, the next few months, we should see at least another two come up for that review as well. Um, And so, and technically there's about 200 or so vaccines that are in different stages of development all over the globe. And so we're at the very beginning trying to, to mitigate the greatest risks that we're having with you know catching this disease and then the negative consequences including death but our opportunities for having more safe and effective vaccines being available also um, the ability to get them into other areas one thing we hadn't necessarily talked about too much today is sort of the the rural versus urban issues and this first vaccine coming out of pfizer because of its ultra cold storage and because you have to order about 1,000 doses at a time, it's really been targeted towards urban centers. Now the Moderna vaccine, with its emergency use, it does not have to have the ultra-cold storage, and also the numbers that people can order batches are much smaller. And so then we'll start seeing it roll out to the rural areas who have really been hit hard as well. And so as each vaccine comes out, um, we'll get more opportunities to spread it out that eventually we will get all Americans vaccinated. We will get the entire globe vaccinated so that we will be able to pull out of this pandemic.
0: Well, Allison, it was great having you. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Lawrence. It was a real pleasure.
0: And listeners, thank you again for tuning in. Always terrific being here with you. Got some hat tips out there to make. Medical news today, thank you. Bryce Helms, by way of NBC, thank you. And the American Journal of Medicine. I'll put links to those articles so everybody can check that out for themselves. Also, big thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough, and our LTN crew. Solid job, like always. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody.